0: listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson. We offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining me today is Seth Cardinal Dodging Horse. Seth, thank you for joining us here on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So on October 1st, an opening ceremony was held for the Southwest Ring Road here in Calgary. Premier Jason Kenney spoke, followed by Transportation Minister Rick McIver, Suit Inna Chief Roy Whitney, and then Mayor Nahid Denshi. Then, disrupting the script of planned speakers for the event, Seth Cardinal Dodging Horse stepped up to the podium and delivered his story for the next 10 minutes. At the conclusion of your speech, you cut both of your braids off and threw them on the highway you were standing on. For our listeners that may be unaware of the significance of this action in suit in a culture, could you explain to us what braids mean and what it means to cut them?
1: Sure. So... Hair is pretty important in Sutina culture. I've been growing my hair for a long time, and I think since I'm 26 now, but when I was 11 years old, I started growing my hair, and that's also when I started um, dancing at powwows and basically beginning to learn more about my culture. And uh, originally, when I started growing my hair, it was something more along the lines of I was a huge fan of, you know music, like punk music and metal. And stuff like that. And um, I also noticed like other dancers, uh, male dancers had long hair and they had braids and you know, I thought they looked really cool. And I never had long hair. And as a child, I used to always get my head shaved and I always really wanted long hair. And so I started growing my hair. And then kind of as I got older into my teens, I started learning more about why we have long hair culturally and the importance of it. And then, you know, I started to learn about residential school and the effects of it on my family and my grandparents and how there's a lot of like older First Nations men that you know weren't given the opportunity or weren't allowed to grow their hair and so I started to feel more pride in growing my hair culturally in that way and then I also learned from some of my grandparents that because originally I, i wouldn't really wear my hair in braids in public or you know outside of powwows. And then I remember they told me they said, they asked me if I was in mourning. And then I said, "Oh, what do you mean?" They're like, "You have your hair out." And then they said, um, "You know, in our culture, as as taught from them, they said we wear our hair out. We don't wear it in braids. We just like let it hang loose when we're in mourning. And that's also when we cut it. And we we cut our hair uh, when we lose a loved one. And so I kind of hung on to that. And then. Originally, I didn't feel super comfortable wearing my hair in public and wearing it in braids because, you know, is having, you know, being brown and having long hair and having braids, you know, there's a lot of racist people, even in Calgary that, you know, I'll walk into a store and they'll look at me differently. I'll get treated differently. So in recent years, I felt more comfortable wearing my hair uh, in braids in public and everything. And I was just taught that it's a source of pride. And it's also like, you know, in a way, it's also our power and it's connected to our bodies. And there's spiritual values behind braiding your hair and having your hair long. So
0: settler capitalist societies like Alberta are accustomed to treating land like a commodity, something that is bought and sold and exchanged. And we're also often taught that having an emotional attachment to land or having stories that are associated with particular places are superstitious or kind of sentimental nonsense. What in your mind is wrong with this approach? And why is it important to tell the stories of particular places? And what do our attachments to these places tell us about ourselves?
1: Sure. Well, kind of to begin with, in Western capitalist society, it's, you know, everyone's assigned a job and even the land is assigned a job, you know, it's, you know, people look at undeveloped lands and they treat them as they kind of look at them in the same way as they look at people that in their eyes and how they see it's not being utilized that that land it has so much potential for profit and depending on where it's located then you know it has a lot of high value and you know and in a lot of ways it need to be exploited but the land doesn't necessarily have a job and a uh, big thing is like Calgary and Sutina because they're so close to one another and now with the ring road that Calgary cuts through the reserve a uh, big part of the reason why Calgary and the province wanted a road through the reserve was because people in Calgary and people that weren't from Sutina viewed the land as you know being uninhabited and underutilized and that land had so many so much potential for a job and it wasn't realizing its full potential in these know, Western settler perspectives. I think a big thing when it comes to that as well is, you know, the settler folks and people from Calgary, something that I heard growing up on the reserve from them. And I went to school in the city. I didn't go to school on Sutina. I went to school in Calgary from elementary school to university and it was something I even heard teachers talk about in elementary school where people would talk about, they'd be like, wow, like I was driving by and I saw the reserves and then they would mention, they'd be like, I noticed that there aren't a lot of tall buildings out, out there. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of buildings. It seems very beautiful there, but it also seems like there isn't much happening there as well. And for myself growing up on Sutana, especially where I grew up, you know, it was a huge expanse of area forest and natural springs and those and I didn't really understand what people meant when they'd say that the land was wasn't being realized to its full potential or that the land wasn't being developed because as I go like, oh, like <laughs> it's very strange because for folks that live in Calgary if, if you want to go and visit the outdoors you kind of have to go drive to a park or you got to within the city or you got to drive outside of the city and go to Banff or places like that. And for someone living on Sutina for myself, that outdoor natural area was just like outside my front door and I could go visit it and everything. And it was pretty strange that it'd essentially be like, why to the forests around Banff, it'd be like, why isn't there another highway going through them? Or it's very interesting when those crown lands are treated in a way where it's like, you know, the great, beautiful, natural outdoors, but when it's the reserve, it's it isn't considered in those same terms and that beauty of it isn't respected and also seen. I think a big thing that's also important to mention is that there's people, you know, people from Calgary don't have access to that land in the same way that they do to be able to go like hike around Banff or, you know, go for walks there. They can't go for walks on Sutina. They can't hike through the forest there. And to them, I guess that That's also another reason why they don't, you know, to them, they don't have an attachment to that land because they don't have those experiences with the land that to them, they don't have a uh, relationship with that land. But, you know, they're so close to the reserve that in a lot of ways they do have a relationship to that land and they do. There is a huge history and connection to that land.
0: So in the story you told on the Ring Road, you told us that the story of Sutina is also the story of Calgary and many Calgarians might not be aware of this very long history. So the hereditary chief of the Sutina, Chief Bullhead, reluctantly signed onto the terms of Treaty 7 in 1877. And for decades after, Calgary's municipal government and the Calgary Board of Trade lobbied to open up their lands to sale. And the Canadian military actually eventually ended up using portions of this land for a really substantial amount of time. Could you tell us a bit more about the Canadian military's use of suits in a lands, particularly, you know, the Harvey barracks and how they were leased by the Canadian military?
1: Sure. At my speech at the opening of the Ring Road, I read a book, or I read a passage from the book, and it has a quote from Bullhead. And the book is called Battlegrounds, the Canadian Military and Aboriginal Lands. And is written by P. Whitney Lackenbauer. And I think that's an incredibly amazing and important book to read. There's For a lot of the books that I've, I've tried to read as many books as I could find that they're pretty much all written by settlers, but about Sutina history. And I think it's one of the best, but it talks a lot about the history of the Sutina lands that were surrendered and used for the army barracks. And kind of my connection to the army barracks that's on the reserve is... I'm 26, but when I was, I think it was 2007, or just before 2007, it might have been 2005, up until 2005 from when I was a child living where I lived on Sutina, I used to see army vehicles, and the army bases were still there. And I used to see tanks driving around on um, that portion of the reserve. So um, to people in Calgary, where the Grey Eagle Casino is, is where I believe there used to be a Base there, and there used to be a, a not a toll booth, but one of those booths, like when you go into a drive-in garage where it has uh, those arms that come down and the person lets you in and lets you out. But there used to be one of those, and I remember that there was one of my family friends that was from Sutina working that. And I remember we'd pull up to it, and the arm would let us off the reserve, and you know this would have been like 2002. The arm would lift up, and we'd go into town, buy our groceries, you know, go see a movie. And then we'd come back home and that same person would lift that arm up again and let us drive back onto the reserve. And some of those old bases were still there. And so when I was growing up, it isn't something that I thought about much or thought was strange or anything, but looking back at it now, it is a little strange to think about how, you know, why that military presence was there. And that was because the Canadian military for years since the 1890s wanted to, as Calgary developed and Canada grew, they needed a base. And they needed land to build a military base that was close to Calgary because Calgary was growing to be a pretty significant city at the time. And they could tell that, you know, this it was going to be a huge city in Western Canada. So they needed land to build a reserve and kind of to the Canadian government and to the military, they thought it would be easier and cheaper if they could get the land from First Nations. And if you read that Battlegrounds book, there's a section in it. And the sources in that book are amazing because they take quotes and they take information straight from letters that were written by people in the military that wanted to build a base on the reserve, But but they there's a piece in there where uh one of the colonels is talking about why building a base on Sutina would be perfect and it was you know, they describe the land and they describe the land in this way where they describe how beautiful it is and how diverse the ecosystem and how diverse the landscape is. And then after describing it they go into talking about how it's unfortunate though, because that land is being underutilized and, you know, that land is basically being wasted. And so one of those colonels actually talks about how they were going to, you know, on behalf of the Canadian military, they proposed, well, why don't we just move the Tsutina? let's move them onto another reserve and we'll build the military base and essentially take all that land that they the treaty promised them essentially take that treaty land, put them on another reserve and we could have our military base really easy. And so with that, you know, that didn't end up happening. And Bullhead was alive at the time. And this was when Sutina Chief Bullhead was alive. And Bullhead was extremely adamant that uh, they didn't let go of any lands and that they didn't surrender and sell huge portion of land to the Canadian military for this base. That's kind of, that's kind of like a huge history of people trying to take Tsutina land and take the land and use it and give it a job because in their eyes, the land wasn't being used. It wasn't until after Bullhead died in 1911 that these huge land surrenders happened, like the Glenmore Reservoir in Calgary. The Glenmore Reservoir used to be part of the Tsutina Reserve and Tsutina lands, and that was land that was surrendered after Bullhead passed away in 1911. I think it was in the 1930s that the Glenmore Reservoir was built. And So the military base is pretty intense because it was kind of the same thing with the ring road where the Calgary Herald and these news outlets were writing about how a new base was going to be, a new military base was going to be built on the Tsutina reserve. And, you know, the Tsutina Indian agent who, you know, isn't Tsutena, but a settler is like reading the newspaper and is like, what? Who agreed to this? Who's going to, you know, so it's kind of like how these colonial and, you know, settler organizations Kind of have this understanding and, you know, kind of evil confidence where they know that they're like, okay, if we keep trying and pushing, we're going to get this land no matter what. So it's, it's totally okay if we continue to say, like, this future military base that's going to be built on the reserve, even though no agreements were made at the time. But that, that's a little bit about the history of the military base. And so basically after Bullhead passed away, while Bullhead was alive, he agreed to let the military train on the lands, but he didn't agree to, you know, sell land to the military or to lease it for a long amount of time. He was like, okay, you guys can train here for a little bit, but you know, you guys aren't going to stick around here forever. And then after he passed away, the next chiefs and the next counselors, that's kind of when after Bullhead passed away, after uh, there was one more hereditary chief after him, Joe Big Plume, or... There was two more. There was Big Belly was after Bullhead. And then after Big Belly, the last Hereditary Chief, uh, recognized Hereditary Chief was um, Joe Big Plume. And once you get into the era of Joe Big Plume, that's when around his time is when they start to have council members and council members that just are men that graduated from residential schools. So you start to, the next era of future leaders are men that came from residential schools and that you know, weren't taught the same values and connections to land. So it wasn't until you know those era of chiefs that went to residential school that land was surrendered and sold, such as like lands for the Glenmore Reservoir, and then the military leases for land on Sutina were extended. And it's pretty intense, but all of these things are also connected to residential school and like the Ring Road and all those, all of those same colonial perspectives and goals. We're all, you know, those all come from those eras. Seth,
0: after your action during the ring road ceremony, a lot of media outlets mistakenly reported that you were a band member of the Sutina Nation. Could you explain for our listeners uh, why that is inaccurate and what are some of the differences and nuances um, that people might not know about when it comes to who counts as a member and who doesn't?
1: So... For myself, I am not a Tsutuna Nation band member, and a band member is someone, you know, who has membership to the nation. and, uh, my grandmother has she's a Tsutuna Nation member, and with things that come down to like the Indian Act, uh, which was extremely sexist. With the Indian Act, it was kind of determined and affected, you know, First Nations kinship and ideas of kinship and erased traditional ideas and values of kinship and introduced a more patriarchal one. And so with that, um, essentially with things like my grandmother, who she is First Nations, she's Tsutina, and she married my grandfather, who... Uh, isn't Sutina? he's Cree, but he's also First Nations. And so for the woman, since she married him, she lost her Sutina status to her own tribe and she took on his membership status to his Cree tribe. So even though she isn't Cree and she didn't grow up within his Cree nation, she lost her status to Tsutena and took on his status. It's pretty complicated, but also another thing is my grandfather, so a First Nations man, he's free to marry whoever he wants to. So if he married a First Nations woman, he wouldn't be affected. He'd keep his same status. If he married a non First Nations woman, then she would actually gain status. In the past, she would gain status and she would actually become enrolled in his tribe. So she'd become a Cree Nation member, even though she's, you know, not First Nations, but the women, the First Nations women were the ones that were affected. So if a First Nations woman married a non First Nations man, a settler, then she would lose her status completely and she'd cease to be First Nations. And, you know what that means under the Indian act. So she'd lose all of her status and her band membership. Um, So it's, it's, pretty sexist and how it doesn't affect the man and it affects the woman and how that enforces, you know, this patriarchal, you know, family and these patriarchal family systems. And so uh, when my grandmother, my grandparents got married and my grandmother became a Cree nation member and she lost her Tsutina status, even though she still lived on Tsutina and Lived on her family's land and the land that her uh, Tsutina mother and grandmother and grandmothers going back all lived on. And so their children, my mom, became enrolled in my grandfather's tribe. And so that went down to me, and I became enrolled in my grandfather's tribe. And I still am enrolled in my grandfather's tribe. And even though I am Tsutina as a person, and culturally, and you know, in every way, I am Tsutina. On paper, I am not a Tsutina Nation band member. And with the way these band memberships are run, it kind of, because of colonial influences, it's become a thing where it's essentially like a club and who's in the club and who isn't in the club. And the people that are inside the club are able to determine who is and who isn't a club member. And so, with the way the Tsutana Nation membership is run. It's essentially run like a club. And my grandmother and my grandfather got divorced, and my grandmother had to go to a vote and pay a fee in order to get her Tsutena status back. And so she became a band member just before the vote for the ring road happened in 2013. So... In 2012 she became a band member again but that didn't affect her children so none of her siblings reverted back to being Tsutina cuz they lived on that land and because they grew up in the Tsutina culture uh in their mother's culture they didn't revert they still retained their father's Cree status and you know their children me and my cousins were all still Cree on paper, even though culturally we've all grown up Tsutena. Not to say we're not Cree as well, but that being Tsutena has been an important part of where we come from and where we live. So when it came down to negotiations for the Ring Road and discussions, my family wasn't included. And even though my grandmother is a nation member, uh, she also wasn't included, and she wasn't um, treated the same as a Tsutuna man uh, would have been treated. And, you know, it's because she's a woman and because of these influences from the Indian Act and residential schools. So there's that complex history that a lot of non-First Nations people don't understand where I've seen people comment and be like, well, how could he be Tsutuna but not be a Tsutuna band member? And that kind of what I explained here pretty much sums it up, you know, all these complicated colonial values and beliefs and structures that are pretty complex and hopefully will get sorted out in the future by other people that don't agree with them and other people that are affected negatively by them.
0: What kind of reaction did you receive after the action you took at the Ring Road Ceremony, both from within your community and from outside
1: of it? it's been pretty quiet, actually, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of fear out here for folks speaking up, and that's a part of the reason why I chose to speak up that day, which is because when it comes to issues and things being handled poorly on the reserve and within the community, people are often afraid to speak up, and there's a big issue of that. And so it has been a little quiet. Um, from responses within the community to me as well i feel like i'd probably get a lot more face to face feedback from folks if it wasn't the pandemic and you know covid wasn't a thing and it was easier to visit people but from what i've seen online from people within the community there there has been some negative comments about me speaking up things saying you know that it was rude of me to speak up and that I was in my place, and but at the same time, it has there has actually been quite a bit of positive feedback from Sutana community, from folks in it, and there, you know, there's been people that have sent me private messages and that have said, you know, thank you so much for speaking up. Said that seeing you speak that day has given me the strength to speak up, to want to speak up to things uh, when people do wrong things to me or when, you know, when bad things happened to me or my family and that for a lot of people, it was also a moment of healing for them as well, seeing me speak and also seeing me cut my hair and that there, there's a lot of people proud of me. And I did also notice that there was kind of a gendered thing that happened where a lot of the folks that did message me and a lot of the folks that did come to support me were women and i think that's an interesting thing where you know there's a big history and there's a big there's a lot of history and effects that people are still feeling from residential schools and patriarchy and all those things and that uh i did notice that a lot of men didn't respond or they were the ones kind of saying negative things but there was a lot of women that were supporting me and sending me a lot of support and I really appreciated that. As for like negative comments and things outside of the community, I've also received a lot of positive feedback from people, and a lot of same thing with folks saying that it was very healing for them to uh, have watched the video of me and that they were sending support and love to my family, which was amazing. Because I, when I spoke up that day, I had the fear that the ring road would open and my family would become invisible again. And that my family's history and our stories and all those would be erased and I'd have to continue fighting. Not that I'm not going to continue fighting, but that I'd have to be continued to fight in a way to be heard um, and that no one would be wanting to listen or, you know, want to hear me. And so there's also like a lot of negative comments from quite a few racist people. And I'm pretty good at ignoring all those comments. They don't really affect me or, you know, I don't bother reading the comment section on, uh, you know, on Facebook or online sources, you know, (laughs) being First Nations and having been on the internet for since as a teenager, I've learned to like avoid reading those things because often you'll just find ignorant people and ignorant comments and so those things haven't really bothered me at all and i haven't paid much attention to them i haven't heard a response from chief and council i haven't really heard much from them there has been some talks within the community that i may be possibly getting banned from the reserve but i i don't know how legitimate that is or anything it's kind of hard to judge those things when you just read about them online or Hear from like word of mouth on the phone and stuff, so I'm not too sure about that. And yeah, I'm just really glad that I spoke up and all of the positive feedback that I received. I I wasn't expecting it, and when I spoke up, I wasn't going into it to you know expect and receive praise. And I'm really glad that what I said resonated with a lot of people and that my family stories connected with a lot of people. And also that you know I've had people message me that say that they've had similar experiences, which makes me feel pretty terrible. But in a way that I'm also, I'm glad that these people also shared their stories with me and that this is an ongoing issue. And this is, the ring road is some you know, it's connected to all these other things. It's connected to First Nations people and suicide. It's connected to like what's going on in Nova Scotia with the racist fishermen, the settlers over there. And, you know, it's connected to like pipelines. All of these things are all connected because they all come from the same colonial mindset and the same expectations of how land should be used and all these colonial expectations and ideas of, you know, the purpose that land has.
0: If our listeners are interested in following you and learning more about your work, where should they look?
1: This summer I was asked to create a sculpture with Yoko Ono for one of her shows called Water Event at Contemporary Calgary. So I have a sculpture that I made with Yoko Ono that's at the, I think it's the old planetarium here in Calgary. That's a piece I made about the Glenmore Reservoir and suit land. And there's a project description folks can read there that kind of talks about the history of uh, the Glenmore Reservoir. And then me and my mom also have a project that just opened, I think last week, but we installed it. It's at the Calgary, the new Calgary Central Library downtown. And we have an installation, and, and it actually has footage that um, was shot at the opening of the ring road ceremony. So it has a bit of my speech, but it also has things that, like, none of the media aired or showed. So it has it kind of shows what happened before the cameras turned on, and then also what happened afterwards when after I spoke and after um, they had a question period. So it's kind of like the director's cut or like the uncut footage of that day that's an installation me and my mom made about our home and the ring road and uh and then also i'm pretty active on instagram my instagram handle is sad birthdays and i put a lot of my art on there and also like some of my family research that i do and a bit of suit history I like sharing that type of knowledge with people and think that's a great outlet as well. And I'm also on Twitter at Lawrence Teeth. And I also have music online at Bandcamp under the name Lawrence Teeth. I'm pretty active and creative person. And yeah, so currently at the moment there's a couple places here in Calgary you can go check out. There's Jin show at Truck, and then The one at the library downtown and then uh, build old planetarium at Contemporary Calgary. Those are up for the next bit.
0: Amazing. Seth, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. It was a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Sure. Great. Thank you so much for having me.